At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today we'll take you to a new state-of-the-art theater in East Point. Hear about a visual artist who finds his creative moments in a megastore and talk with a popular rap artist about his latest recording. The Atlanta-based Christian rapper Lecrae has a new album for those who have felt removed from church during the pandemic, emotionally as well as physically. Later this hour, City Lights producer Summer Evans speaks with Lecrae about working with rapper 1K Few on the new album No Church in a While. First, the Tony-nominated play Closer by Patrick Marber takes a microscope to modern relationships. Two couples' lives intertwine when partners are caught between love, desire, and betrayal. The play will be on stage at the Windmill Arts Center in East Point Friday through Sunday. January 28th through 30th, director and actor Jeff Cole, who portrays Larry, joins me now via Zoom, along with Chad Darnell, who portrays Dan. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. Jeff, can you give us a synopsis? Absolutely. A lot of people asked me when I was starting to get this play into production, why this play now? And I thought really intensely about what we've just come out of with the isolation, with the pandemic, and how so many people were forced to rely on themselves selfishly to survive, to maintain their sanity, to do the things that they need to get done. And coming out of that and reintegrating into relationships, when you have that mindset, that selfish focus, that need to fulfill, what does that look like in relationships? And this play takes like the intro you so eloquently said describes, it takes a microscope to it. And what happens to relationships when we approach them just to selfishly fulfill our need and not with compromise? So the plot involves two couples and 
What plays out? No spoilers, but what ensues? Well, the two couples engage in a love square, so to speak. They all are finding each other and losing each other along the way. Meanwhile, learning and discovering things about themselves and about their relationships and their partners that is life-changing. So without any spoilers, they, they are at the height of these relationships and at the depth of their relationships at the same time. Ah. Closer opened in London in 1997 and premiered on Broadway two years later. It was made into a film in 2004 with an all-star cast, including Jude Law, Julia Roberts, Natalie Portman, and Clive Owen. You mentioned the pandemic, Jeff. Is your setting still in the late 90s and early aughts, or have you adapted it to the present? We've kept all of the dialogue and all of the script notes and all of the furniture and settings to be the 90s. But the play plays out in such a way that it could be in any generation, any time. What can you tell us about your character, Larry? I love Larry. Larry is a, he's a very visceral, chest-forward man. He lives on his instinct. He has a bit of an insecurity complex in that he feels less than. He's working class. Even though he's a doctor, he is a doctor in a universal healthcare system. So he has a set wage. And so he's always trying to overcome those things that he feels less than in while still minding his instincts and appreciating life with his intense drive and passion. Chad, how does Dan, your character, differ from Larry? What I love about this character and when I auditioned for it, I always said, like, no one's going to cast me as the straight, sexy, romantic lead. And then Jeff did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He screwed that one up. (laughs) And uh, what I love about this character is what we talked about in the audition is that when you read the script, if you were just to read the script, you would think, oh, he's the villain in the movie, but he's not. And none of them are. They're all deeply flawed, damaged characters. They're all very flawed. And so you just have to play the truth of who those people are. And I, in the beginning of it, I started reading about books on narcissists and then I immediately discovered Dan is not a narcissist. But I also talked to Jeff about how what Dan does to these two women, I've had done to me in relationships. And I I was looking forward to exploring that. And then as we got into rehearsal, I'm like, I don't think I actually want to dig up those skeletons right now. (laughs) I think we'll just let them (laughs) stay buried where they're buried. But it's really interesting and especially how the play cuts across in time periods. In one scene, it's six months after the previous scene or a year. And so in the transitions, you have to immediately jump to the space and time and where that character's mindset is then and what their relationship is currently with whatever person they're with. And that can definitely do a number on you, especially towards the end of the play. It's been really fascinating. And it's different from Hedwig. It's different from playing David Oselznik. It's because he's just this raw, disturbed character who wants the truth in everything, but yet lies to the, both of these women. It's great. 
and Hedvig and David Hoselsnick, those were big roles you had taken on not all that long ago. Yeah, so fun. What can you tell us about the female characters, Alice and Anna? Alice calls herself a waif. She is a character that survives, again, on her instincts. And Anna is a woman that comes from money but has chosen to live an artist's life in the city with the ability to take leave if she needs to. The interesting thing that Marber does in this play is every scene in every transition of relationship is a repeat of another scene in another relationship. It's just, he takes the perspective. So I think Alice is more along the lines of relating to Larry, but loves Dan. And Anna is more along the lines of relating to Dan, but ultimately loves Larry. And so the scenes that they play out, the scenes that these women have with these men are converse of the other scene that the other woman's playing with the other man. It's this interesting balancing act that Marber does where he shows that we all live the same existences with all different perspectives and different takes on it. But the women are just versions of, I don't want to say they're versions of the men because they are standalone. They are their own amazing selves. But what I described about Larry and what Chad described about Dan, I think that they are found also in these women. Now, our actresses are wonderful and they found their own intensity in, in their characters' lives and existences. Alice is a, is a wonderful character. She is, as she says, a waif, but she's a stripper to make money. Uh, she survives on the street with her, with her wits, but she's, she's looking for love, truth, and honesty. And Anna is somebody that has set a life up for herself. She, she is strong in her own way, but, but weak in her need for, for relationship and, and love as well. Why is this play described as a cautionary tale? I think it's what, what I described initially, where whenever we come into a relationship seeking to fulfill something missing in ourselves by that relationship, I think we set the relationship up to fail. These relationships are all based on each individual selfish need and not compromise and not, not giving to the other sacrificially. Everything is about what can I get from this? And when I get what I want from it, it seems to end. It seems to be done for me. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's so much about the compromise and how these characters and somehow some of them do not. And cautionary tale for Dan especially is that he's gone from one relationship into another. And then he also kind of starts stealing their lives. <laughs> you know, he steals... Alice's life by turning her into a book and then he ends up taking on personality traits of Anna as well as a writer to manipulate Larry and as Marber describes it it's a play about love it's not a play about manipulation or deception and that's again that's that trick because when you first read the script you're like oh it's about this and if you realize as you get further into it it's not about that and it's been so much fun getting to play that. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with director and actor Jeff Cole and actor Chad Darnell from the production of Closer. 
playing now at the Windmill Arts Center in East Point. Well, it sounds like these characters are damaged, as you said, flawed, and not likable. I'm always intrigued with playwrights, authors who who create unlikable characters. How do you win over an audience? I love that question. So, and that's what's great about this piece because he's so unlikable. And Alice does things that are unlikable, but it's just playing the, as long as you're playing the truth of the character and what their objective is, which in this case, it's Dan wants to be in love. He loves the idea of love. He wears his heart on his sleeve, but he does really bad things. I think we've all dated people like that. One of the funny things that happened, you know, when you can have access to a writer, it's different in the film industry where the screenwriter's on set so an actor can walk up to the screenwriter and be like, is this what this meant? Or in many cases, like with a play, the actor takes that and makes their interpretation of it. But there's a moment at the very, very, very end of the play that I was dying to know if Dan sees this thing or not. But I really wanted to know from the horse's mouth, like, does Dan or does he not see this thing? And he wrote me back and he told me the secret. And it's not exactly what I wanted to hear. (laughs) (laughs) But now I know, and I, I, I wanted to know the secret and he told me the secret. And so I will play it that way. But it was, it's interesting, it's, it, it, but it also fits with the play. It's just, I saw it differently in my head. Come see the play and then DM me and I'll tell you what the secret is. But it's, uh, <laughs> he told me the secret that was like so exciting. And he, he wishes good luck. So it's very exciting. Jeff, were you down with that? Yeah, I, I would love to answer that. And it's a wonderful question. I've had multiple people come up to me and say the exact same thing. There's a couple of thoughts that I have about it. One is the interesting thing that Marber does is he makes these characters say out loud and do out loud what most people's subtext is. He makes us speak it. He makes us tell what's really going on inside. I say things in this show as Larry and Chad does as Dan that I don't think I would ever say to my lover in real life, even if it was the truth. Because Marber just makes us put it out there so that people see the reality of What if we had to tell the truth in this situation? Everybody thinks it's so damnable because it's such a harsh, honest truth. But it is the truth. As ugly as it is, we we have these as human beings. We have these instincts and these thoughts and these things we wish we could say, but we don't say these things that we are thinking, but we don't. And oftentimes people stay in relationships for years that they shouldn't because they're afraid to say the truth. They're afraid to say that thing. And sometimes people live lies for so long. And these characters are so honest, even in their lying, they're honest, even in their, they're speaking out their subtext. It's just this brutal honesty to get that thing that they want. And oftentimes it's damaging. But the other thing that, that I look at is as actors, we have to be able to defend our characters in a court of law. We can't go into this play thinking Larry is bad. Dan is bad. I have to go into Larry and play Larry empathetically. I have to play him finding the things in him that tell me why he is the way he is. And I have to base it on things that I can empathize with as as a person. 
as Jeff. I play Larry, recognizing things in Larry that I understand in myself. Sometimes I make decisions based on insecurity. Sometimes I make decisions based on fear. And to the outside world, if that was all you saw of me, you would think bad things of me, but it's not the completion of me. And so I think Marver did a wonderful job in making us speak out loud the subtext, the truth, but also as actors, our job is to bring the empathetic connection to the character so you don't hate us, so that you feel for us in the end. Mm. And how great that he answered you, Chad. And uh, I mean, that you can do that at all. You can't do that with Shakespeare. <laughs> no, you can't. And it's just, and I've, I've been such a huge fan of his forever and like to have that secret. And it, and I think for most people, they wouldn't even care, but it was like, it was killing me because you're in the middle of the scene. And literally what I think it is, is right in front of him and he does, well, he, you know, it's, it's a secret. And so like, it's very exciting. You know, what's interesting also is there's a line in the play that Anna says to me, about the internet, how wonderful the internet is. And I say, absolutely, it's the future. And she says, the possibility of global communication. And here we are in this play in 2022, and Chad's able to reach out through the internet to the author of the play. It brings it full circle. Indeed, technology can be wonderful when it behaves. Chad, you have a feature film coming out this spring. And I learned after your performance in Closer, you're going to L.A. to start your next feature film. What can you tell us about The Undertaker's Wife? I'm very excited. It's Shannon Sossaman and John Brotherton, and we shot it like right after... I did Moonlight Magnolias two years ago, and I was like flying back and forth to LA on, you know, after the Sunday matinee, I would go straight to the airport, fly to LA, come back on the red eye, do the show. It, I did that for three weeks. And then we shot it, and then this thing called COVID hit. Hmm. And um, so we edited the film in, in post and in, in COVID. And then of course, with a lot of studios, things were up and down and the deals were left and right. So, but it is coming out this spring and I'm very excited about it. Shannon Sossaman is just bonkers great in it. Uh, she's, she plays a woman who is the wife of an undertaker, played by John Brotherton. They run a funeral home together and uh, their first night moving into this new space in the South, bad things happen by a, a person who comes by late at night. And then the movie that I'm getting ready to do in, as soon as we wrap closer, uh, will be shot in LA. It takes place in the Hollywood Hills and it's about an actress who uh, purchases an old famous home and bad things happen to her in the house. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the leitmotif of your film career. I know, I keep telling my, my people, I'm like, I want to do a comedy. Can I start doing comedies? Like, happy things. How does your background in acting inform your work as a director? Well, actually, the acting and the casting, you know, I was, I've been in casting for 30 years and I keep trying to get out of casting, but I'm very grateful to it right now because it's keeping, you know, a roof over my head. <laughs> because with COVID, the intelligent, which I start shooting, you know, after Closer, we kept, we were delayed for a year because of COVID with the testing and actors coming down with it and producers coming down with it. So I've been in casting for 30 years and working with actors in the room or even working with them over Zoom that really kind of informed me who I was as a director. Uh, and then as an actor, 
all the tricks that she would use in a performance, I've been able to put that into words as a director in directing people. What's your intention? What do you want in this scene? Where, what's the arc here? So it, definitely working as a casting director and before that an actor, having extensive studies with different teachers, that's really what made me a really good director. You know, having been in casting for years, it's funny at the end of the night when you rap, you're the one that's like, they're like, quick, get in the van. Because normally in casting, if I was doing extras casting or even principal casting, we had to recast somebody. You're working for hours after rap. So it's weird at the end of the night to be like, do I need to sweep up or anything? Or are you guys good? They're like, get in the van, get in the van. <laughs> so, very different experience. This question is for both of you. I was hoping you could tell us something about the Windmill Art Center, the venue where you're playing. Absolutely. I, I, have, I have had such a wonderful experience Sam, and I apologize, I'm forgetting his last name at the moment, uh, the owner of the Windmill Arts Center has been such a generous, generous host. He had the Windmill Arts Center built based on his specs. He has one of the nicest lighting grids and sound systems and black box theaters I've ever seen. Uh, I've done work in Los Angeles and New York, and this is by far one of the nicest black box theaters I've ever been in. We have 80 seats permanent and the ability to add 10 more to make it a 90 seat theater. But the, the theater is beyond comparison. It's such a beautiful space, such a great place to see theater. And we're doing something unique with this show where we're projecting our backdrops Ooh. because Closer has so many scene changes my assistant director and co-producer on this kyle roberts has been a tech whiz and has been building the sets on the computer that we are going to project onto screens behind us while having our minimal props on stage and creating that depth of field and that immersive environment and what I love about it is it's it's just two blocks from the is it East Point? I think it's the East Point Marta Station. So yeah. when it's fun to see things there, I just you know walk up to my little Marta Station here in Midtown, and then I pop off down. It's great. It's I love that. Well, hearing you talk about state of the art comparisons to New York and L.A. and thinking about this new venue in East Point really says a lot about. An emerging art center. Yes. You know, this is one of the exciting things about Atlanta, I think, is that our arts community is growing. It's definitely growing. You know, I was on the board of the Atlanta Coalition of Theaters back in the 90s. Jen Jenkins, who we lost recently, she was one of the heads of that. And when I left Atlanta in 2000, moved to L.A. and came back in 2013, we had about 100 theater companies in town. And, you know, that's expanded so far with dance and all, all of the arts. And that's one of the reasons I came back to Atlanta was to get back into theater here in town. And I, I, we do have such a great, strong theater community here in Atlanta. And it's so great that we have new spaces like the windmill that are available to rent so we can produce theater. And I will say something else to add on to that, how generous the theater community has been to us because I'm from Los Angeles as well. I'm a transplant here. And I don't have the theater connections that I had in Los Angeles. Being a member of the Actors Studio and a part of theater companies in Los Angeles, 
coming out here, the, the local theater community has reached out to us and has said any way that they can help us promote our shows and be a part of, of helping us advance what we're trying to do. So that, that's something that's really special and I think unique about this market and the arts community here that is unique and special. I love it. Actor and director Jeff Cole with actor Chad Darnell. Closer is on stage at the new Windmill Arts Center in East Point, January 28th through the 30th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with the Atlanta musical artist Lecrae, amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Since the start of the pandemic, churches have noticed a significant drop in attendance, though many churches have online worship to be more accessible. Christian rappers Lecrae and 1K Few noticed this decline and decided to create a collaborative album addressing the issue. No church in a while. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with the Atlanta musician Lecrae about the new album. Before we talk about the album, can you tell us how you met 1K Few? Essentially, he was kind of an up-and-coming local artist here in Atlanta. He had a song that was making a little bit of noise and my he had reached out to my engineer and my engineer said hey you should got you you should listen to this kid i think he would sound good on on something we have and um i watched this video i had heard about him um hadn't really heard much of his music and then i said well yeah get him to the studio and he came to the studio and uh the rest was history he just showed up and started hitting home runs yeah, yeah. And you signed him onto your record label, Reach Records, in 2017? Correct. Yeah. And he's about 25 years old, um, you know, just kind of at the start of his musical journey. So 
How has it been for you being a mentor to him? That's been really neat. Um, you know, he's been like a little brother and somebody that I can just give a lot of wisdom and insight to. You know, I've seen him make great decisions based off of, you know, just being humble and inquisitive. And so that's been really exciting to see his career just move forward with, with that mentorship relationship. Right, right. And I really like his name, 1K Few, because the 1K stands for like being 1000% authentic and genuine. And then few is kind of like a riff off of nephew. Is that right? Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> he, he's always, he said he's everybody's favorite nephew. So that's, <laughs> that's, what, that's what happened. Yeah. yeah. I know for many people, the pandemic caused churchgoers to either watch online or just not return. And some people haven't gone back to church since the beginning of the pandemic. How has it affected your walk with Christ and how you are seeking spiritual guidance during the pandemic? Um, I think it's made me a lot more, you know, consistent in terms of just trying to make sure that I'm being fed, make sure that I'm in my word. And, you know, because I think a lot of times we were so reliant on on a Sunday morning that we, you know, needed to take some responsibility on our day to day. And so that's what it's done for me. It's just really made my day to day actions a lot more sincere and yeah i mean you know it's not so much about a sunday play or or entertainment consumption it's more about being a part of something and um and seeing what i'm doing without that being there right it's not about like checking off a box on sunday but carrying it throughout the week and yeah exactly mm -hmm. So your album, No Church for a While, was a response to the fact that many people, including you and 1KFU, had not been to church in a long time due to COVID-19. How did you want this album to resonate with your listeners and fans? I just wanted them to feel comfortable having the conversation. I think a lot of times, you know, we as the church are a little uncomfortable with certain topics and conversations. And so it's just easier to avoid them. Um, but the reality is there's just a lot of people who are struggling with what church looks like for them, especially after the pandemic. And so we wanted people to be comfortable talking about it, dialoguing about it, because you, you don't find any healing unless you actually address the issues that you're dealing with. Um, so we, we looked at it kind of like therapy for people who were either struggling with not being able to go to church or struggling with church hurt. Mm, yeah. And did you and 1K have a lot of long conversations before entering this album on what that looked like for each of you? We did. Yeah, we did. Um, I think we both had, and not just him and I, but like a lot of artists, you know, as we began to talk, it, it felt like this was a consistent theme. If it wasn't the artists themselves, it was someone that they were close to that was struggling in this particular area, which helped us realize like, this is not just something that we're dealing with. This is like a bigger issue that people are dealing with, you know, globally. Mm -hmm. And I was on your Instagram and I don't know if this was a launch party for the album, but <laughs> I, it was at a church and I saw that there were like tattoos of 116 and people getting gold grills and chicken and waffles. Is that, mm -hmm. was that a launch party for this album? It was, yeah, it was a launch party. It was really great. We, you know, we just, we wanted to do something that was authentic to us and, um, and invite the community out. And it was cool just to see people come out, free food, you know, the, the grill moldings, uh, the tattoos, everything was free. And then of course, you know, we had a great panel discussion with some local artists who, you know, had their issues with church. And it was really encouraging to hear them, you know, see like, to, for them to see authentic Christians and say, oh, wow, I didn't know this existed. 
And then, of course, uh, Tadashi taught from the scriptures. And it was just a great time that people really were, were blessed by. How can events like that help change the view and perspective of what people believe church to be? That it's not just a building, but it's, it's something else. Yeah, I think um, I think it just takes, you know, small events create like a, a snowball effect. And I think that's what we just want to do is if we don't have the conversation, people don't investigate and they don't they don't know what to look for. I hear a lot of people say, man, I'm done with the church. And my response to them would be like, well, which one are you done with? Because it's, you know, have you seen them all? And I think a lot of times it's they've experienced some hurt in one particular area, but they haven't seen that, you know, the church is not a building or that one particular building or group of people. It's, it's, it's a, it's a group of people across the world. So we just want people to feel like, man, there is a home for me. And there are people who will love me and, and accept me for who I am. In one of the tracks featured on the album, One Call, you and 1K Few are in a county jail. I'm Bob Marley. God told me through the scriptures I was reading to serve all of these people in the system because they need it. So when you hear me speaking or sliding on the B10, hoping to inspire you to visit prison on the weekend. All I gotta do is make me one call that's all reminiscent leaning on a county jail wall. Is this a reference to the work you've done with the Fulton County Jail and the inmates around Atlanta? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to inspire people to not forget um, those who are incarcerated. I just think that, I mean, I've, in my experience, I've seen like a lot of folks feel forgotten. You know, I have some close friends and family members who are currently incarcerated and, you know, they are um, are human and they're, you know, some of them have made mistakes, some of them um, may have been the victim of something unjust. And I want folks to continue to care about them and continue to treat them as, as, as human beings. You know, there's church happening in those prison systems every, every week. <laughs> and so some of those people will never enter a church building again, but they need the encouragement and the, the support to, to be a light in a dark place. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the work that you've done with the inmates, like the partnerships with the prison fellowship and mass for the people? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really big part of my life. It's something that I, it's second nature to me. Um, you know, obviously we've gone to Fulton County jail and we've, you know, brought tools and supplies in terms of like uh, keeping people safe from COVID masks and sanitizer. We have uh, done concerts at different prisons around the country uh, worked in prison fellowship. Uh, we've created curriculum. We've done a contest to, you know, help encourage people to use their gifts um, and and write songs. You know, it's just been an ongoing deal where we're just trying to support those who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it can be such a cyclical thing, you know, for people right. in the system. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And we definitely want to, you know, break the cycles and end the stigma. So. Can you, you touched upon the contest. It was the J-Pay contest. Can you expand upon that and what that exactly entailed? Yeah, so it was the first hip hop contest uh, to ever be done within a, a correctional facility. Um, what we did was we had over 500 applicants. Uh, they submitted their songs. Um, we had Morris Brown uh, College, the music department go through those 500, narrow them down to 25. Um, out of those 25, I chose you know a winner. And uh, Zaytoven, uh, a, a you know, star-studded local producer, agreed to produce the song. Um, I'll feature the song, and then 
you know, that person will be on there. And any proceeds that are made go back toward the programs that benefit people who are incarcerated. Wow. And so, uh, yeah, awesome. really excited about that. So will the song be featured on your next album? Um, it'll probably be a, a solo single that just mm -hmm. comes out by itself. Yeah. So how do you feel that this album's sound and mission differs from your 2020 solo album, Restoration? Yeah, well, you know, solo album for me is a lot more introspective and it's just room for me to explore all the different facets of who I am. A collaborative project like this, we just kind of narrow in on where we're similar and have in, in our in a line and um, kind of camp out there. So and I would say this was a lot more fun. Um, I, my, I tend to make projects that are really kind of thought provoking and um, a little more serious, but this was a lot more fun and, and allows people to kind of enjoy uh, the therapy session via music, so to speak. Yes, ma'am. And I just had a court case. Why you judging me too? That ain't even what the Bible say. You supposed to love me too. I was in the mud. You supposed to pull me up. You just drug me through. I was popping all the pills. You ain't pray for me. You just drug me too. Coming up, I was bumping that cross yeah. movement. I really enjoyed the music video that accompanied the one call. And you guys were like dancing around in a jail cell. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. awesome. Which I want to congratulate you. You won a 2021 Dove Award for Rap Hip Hop Single of the Year for Deep End on Restoration. So congrats. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. So can you break down the meaning behind the song Wildin'? Yeah. Um, Wildin' is like, you know, it's a term that just means, you know, you are, you, you're really, you're going against the grain. Like, you know, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're breaking the norms. And, um, you know, we, the, the Pharisees would have looked at Jesus and said, oh, you're wilding, you know, Jesus, you're doing too much. You, you, you're breaking our, our social norms. We don't like what you're doing. You're causing trouble here. And uh, the, the chorus on Wilding says, you know, they say there's no church in the wild, but we've been wilding. So the thought process is they say like out here in the streets or in the prison, there's no there's there's no church. There's no picture of God. But but we're we're saying, no, we're here and we've been we've been breaking the rules and, and, and doing what people thought couldn't be done. You know, they say there's no church in the wild, but we've been wilding. We've been on top for a while and let my crowd in. When I see a producer who, you know, doesn't have a church background, he's, he's coming from a marginalized community, and he's asking about what 116 means, and we explain to him the scripture reference, and he's like, man, I'm just so moved by it, I want to get it tattooed, and he tattoos it on his face, you know, and so, but that to me is wild, and because that, that's kind of breaking some of the norms that people would expect, um, but now this man is, is going to be walking back out into the wilderness um, with a new picture of being unashamed of the gospel. Right, right. And for our listeners that are unfamiliar with your slogan, 116, what's that a reference to? 
Yeah, 116 is a reference to Romans 116, um, which says, I'm unashamed of the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And so it's just been a global movement that, you know, took off where people were like wanting to, to live unashamed lives, be unashamed of their faith, uh, regardless of their the environment that they're in. Right. Yeah. When we last spoke in July of 2020, it was right after the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement following the killings of black men and women in America. And I asked you about advice for white evangelical followers when discussing race in the environment of church and outside of church. And you said when white evangelicals confront issues of race, their entire worldview is being shaken. And it's very difficult to have your entire worldview shaken without feeling abrasive or feeling defensive. And I would say to be okay to have your worldview shaken. So now, a year and a half since our last conversation and all that occurred, have you noticed a difference by those Christian communities? Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, sometimes it takes people a while to kind of process things and to figure out where they land. And so what I've seen is that people are processing over the last year and they're, and they're saying, okay, okay, this makes more sense to me now or um, I hear, understand what you were saying now. And that's great. I mean, you know, go on your journey and, um, and grow. I think what I've learned personally is to just continue doing the work because the work's got to be done. If I see an issue or see a need, I want to step in and meet the need, um, whether or not people believe it's needed or necessary. Um, we see it We're we're in it. And so we just want to continue to meet those needs and, and, you know, people, catch on and say, oh, shoot, I need to jump in here, then great. But if not, then, um, you know, God be with them in their journey. Atlanta-based Christian rapper Lecrae, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. His new collaborative album with 1K Few, No Church in a While, is out now. Coming up, we'll listen back to my conversation with the artist nicknamed America's Brand Name Painter by Time Magazine. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Artistic inspiration can come from anywhere, including megastore Walmart. Painter Brendan O'Connell began painting Walmarts first as a sleuth. He's been kicked out of more Walmarts than most people have visited, but nowadays he paints freely. Brendan grew up in Tucker, Georgia, and has work in the permanent collection at the High Museum of Art. When he visited me in the WABE studios in 2018, he explained when his inspiration to paint the megastore began. I moved to Europe after going to Emory and I spent seven years there and when I came back I had this desire to paint America mm. and kind of there weren't 1500 Walmarts when I left but they were there when I came back so it was definitely a noticeable 
uh, entity. And I, I also live in the country in Connecticut, and you don't see people until you actually go to a Walmart. Really? I, I, I'll go to my bank, and I can say, you know, I'm the only one in line, and can I get me a dog biscuit and a mortgage? You know, there, <laughs> there's like no one there. But um, when you go to Walmart, you suddenly see vast numbers of people. Now that you mention it, I remember reading that in a Walmart in Connecticut. Was it your wife? My mother. Your mother had Meryl Streep in front of her and a woman in a muumuu in back of her. Precisely. Who who knew these famous people go to Walmart? Who knew? Well, there's something very democratic about this space. Yes. That, That... it's an enormous entity, and it's the most visited interior architecture on the planet. And that's sort of why I was compelled to keep painting it. Maybe not why I started, but why I kept doing it. Yeah, uh, some people decry Walmart as the epitome of evil. But through your years inside of the stores, have you reached a more nuanced conclusion about the role of the stores in American society? Um, well, well, in many ways, it's like the U.S. government. It's massive. There are some amazing things about it and then some very public blunders. And, and you can't get away from the whole story. It just kind of is part of the fabric of our society. So I, I tend to not go for punchlines because I feel like the conversation stops when you hit a punchline and and more just if you paint six feet of Cheetos or cornflakes, some people read political statements in that and some people just think that's beautiful and I want it in my house. <laughs> Do you find that in general people are willing to be painted as they're shopping? Is it hard to explain the concept to them as you're doing it? Well, I did. 10 years in, uh, not 10 years, but I, I, I did several years doing portraits in the street in, in Europe. And so I was able to engage with people from that experience. And th- that was somewhere along the line, I started thinking, how would I engage with people in an everyday, in this place of Walmart, and then follow them home and paint them in their everyday environment? And I suggested that to Walmart, and they were like, please don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) That could be very creepy. Yes. Um, And so, but Airbnb came along and provided this technology, which allowed me to get into everyday Americans' homes. As you're describing it, Brendan, um, it doesn't seem so creepy when you think about how magazine photographers are invited into people's homes. You just are doing it with a brush. With a brush and also the fact that that we're in this very strange place where technology sometimes facilitates interaction and sometimes uh, helps keep us apart. Mm-hmm. But in, in many ways, you know, we, we don't want our mother-in-law to stay with us, but a stranger with a hundred bucks can have the guest room. <laughs> the transaction somehow makes it safe to let a stranger in your space. Do you think our lives are more affected by the mundane, everyday tasks instead of major events? Is that part of what drew you to the Walmart art? Um, 
I like the idea of seeing something overlooked and trying to make something beautiful out of it. That that I find interesting. The the old, I mean, I went to Catholic school here, and the idea of kind of making making a sacrament out of an ordinary moment it was. I saw that as an artistic idea. Brendan, unlike many other successful artists, you didn't have any formal training, did you? Um, not, not, not really. When I was 22, I, I, dis- I was writing a novel about a group of painters, and I decided to teach myself how to draw because I had a character who was self-taught. You never drew before that? No, never. How did you get from there to there? You know, it's it's one of those things where the there, you think it's going to happen instantly. Something happens and you're like, oh, I'm set now. And then 15 years go by and nothing really happens. And then uh, there, there are a lot of peaks and valleys being a painter. Your wife is also a painter. She is. She, she did the White, Emily Buchanan. She did the White House Christmas card for the Obamas. But she prefers landscapes. Yes. You are drawn to people. I feel like I started doing a little bit of what she does. I just happen to do it inside. I paint the paved part of the earth and she does <laughs> landscapes. And so I'm doing plein air in Walmart or people's houses. And you compared the aisles to boulevards of Paris. Well, there's something about the, the way the impressionist focused on Every day, you know, the commercial life uh, as in Walmart kind of put boulevards underneath a roof. You know, they're very wide aisles and the concept of 15,000 skews being under one roof is is, uh, mind boggling. It is. Would you talk about what happened in the trajectory of your relationship with Walmart? So, so that it was funny because originally I would go in, I would take a few pictures and someone would tap me on the shoulder and say, you're going to have to leave. <laughs> and, and then I would get a group of artists to go with me and I would, the goal, I would buy them all lunch in exchange for taking a hundred pictures before they got thrown out. Well, there was a point where you stopped being thrown out and in fact you were contacted by corporate Walmart well, I, I, I think I was on NPR in Boston, and I literally said, I've been thrown out of more Walmarts than most New Yorkers have ever been in. And I think I got a call 10 minutes later. From corporate Walmart. Yes. And, and, and they were like, we actually like what you do, and we'd like to make it easy on you to go do this. And then Susan Orlean did a profile of you in the New Yorker. Yes, yes. Every day I think... Susan Orlean and Jesus for my, because that was like getting a lottery ticket for, for an artist. In the influences we talked about, of course, Warhol. Um, Edward Hopper. I was hoping you would talk about Edward Hopper because while Warhol and Wayne Tebow with his pies and so cakes beautiful. are beautiful and sort of sunny and optimistic... Hopper, Hopper's work just seems to epitomize loneliness. You know, if you look at the colors, he paints sad isolation with the most beautiful palette. Do you know what I mean? There's something very warm and 
beautiful, even though the light is cold and the subject matter is cold. I, I, I find him regularly enlightening. And, and brands are kind of a cold idea and a neutral idea. And in some ways, nostalgia makes a memory warmer. And I feel like paint makes something innocuous like a brand warmer. Do you think you will move on from Walmart? Well, I, I've been doing the Airbnb, and I've been doing various forms of brands. I've been, uh, and I've been a closet abstract painter for, for, you know, most of my career. So, really? So I, I I I do a bit. In fact, the piece at Emory University in the Chemistry Building is all abstract. Artist Brendan O'Connell from our conversation at the WABE Studios in 2018. You can hear that entire interview on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., friend of the show, director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company joins us for a tribute to musical theater legend Stephen Sondheim. Plus, we'll hear about the world premiere of Dreamhouse on the Hurt stage at the Alliance Theater. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E at last. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.